It's at Spurgeon's College, and it's great to see that Spurgeon's is actually quite well represented uh, this morning at this event. Uh, so greetings to all of you, and my thanks to uh, Andy, Steve, and Simon uh, for organizing this really uh, commendable event here in the heart of London to discuss uh, the future of Baptist theology. So I'd like to begin with a few questions. Um, freedom, compassion, and creativity. What does uh, theology have to say to the crucified people who represent the sufferings of Christ in the world today? Uh, what does theology mean to the scum of the earth, to those non-persons uh, without status, without wealth, without power? And how does theology connect with the lived experience of the poor in spirit? What does theology have to say to uh, the homeless people, the people that uh, Seidel and I um, encountered on our way here just this morning walking from Charing Cross Station, the homeless people living and in many cases dying on the streets of our cities? Uh, dying unknown and in solitude, unpitied, without anyone even to mourn their loss. These are some of the questions that I've set to myself in this, uh, this book, my book, uh, Theology After Christendom. And um, the book is the product of a long-term endeavor to discover a vision for the renewal of public theology um, that can address these questions in a way that speaks prophetically uh, into these situations. So in the present uh, post-secular world, or the, post, uh, or, or the secular age, I think that a deep crisis has engulfed theology. And I have a presentiment that the judgment of God is upon Christian theology. Theology has been marginalized or even ignored altogether as theologians have been slow to grasp the magnitude of unprecedented developments in our contemporary world. Developments such as uh, the biotechnological revolution, uh, the rise of artificial intelligence, uh, the emergence and expansion of international terrorism, the upsurge of religious fundamentalism, a major global financial crisis, and now we see the sudden resurgence of fascist and uh, nationalist sentiment um, throughout the world, especially in the wake of Brexit and Donald Trump. And I've written about this in my book, that the world seems to be on the brink of a radical revolutionary change. And we're now transitioning into a dangerous era of dehumanization and God-forsakenness. And in this new authoritarian age, a new world is coming into being. This is a world that is governed not by the Christian values of love, compassion, and solidarity, but by the values of power, by the racial politics of blut und boden, or blood and soil, and the collective 
demonic power of national identity and the so-called will of the people. So the aim uh, in, uh, in this short presentation is to think about how public theology can be reconstructed in light of the changes associated with these new realities. So in the book, in, in, in the, book the, uh, the aim is to offer an outline of a public theology that is attuned to the dynamic movement of the Holy Spirit in the world today. And I propose the fundamental realities of freedom, compassion, and creativity, this triad, as uh, central elements, as helpful points of departure uh, for formulating a, a, a relevant, credible, and prophetic public theology. And so this triad, I would argue, offers an appropriately Trinitarian focus for theology, since each spiritual reality exemplifies the basic principle of the Father, or freedom, uh, the Son, or compassion, and the Holy Spirit, who represents creativity. And so the, the intention of the triad is to offer uh, or, or to express the unity in diversity of the sacred trinity. So let's consider first of all the first part of this triad, uh, freedom. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Thus wrote the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, and he thereby expressed a key truth that offers a useful departure point for envisaging the whole aim and scope of theology in the contemporary world. We'll remember that Christianity made its explosive, experience, made its explosive appearance on the earth as a movement of radical emancipation. Jesus Christ began his public ministry by preaching a revolutionary message of freedom. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me to preach deliverance to the captives, said Jesus. The New Testament is full of exhortations and affirmations of freedom. And freedom constitutes the essence of the spiritual life in the same way uh, that oxygen constitutes the essence of uh, biological life. And within the freedom of the spirit, God's summons to human beings is to participate with him in his grand project of redemption. And God expects from us not formal adherence, to a legal code, but the free and creative response to his self-sacrificing love. So theology aspires towards uh, what uh, uh, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, the glorious liberty of the children of God. It aims to elevate human beings to a new level of the consciousness of freedom. And God has laid upon his human creatures the duty, not just the right, but the duty of being free, of safeguarding freedom of spirit, no matter how difficult that may be, or how much sacrifice or suffering might be 
required. Now, the problem uh, that theology today needs to address is the inability and the unwillingness of people to embrace authenticity and freedom. Uh, freedom is hard work. It always comes at a cost. This was one of the lessons of 20th century existentialist philosophy. Uh, so we see, for example, in the works of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, Martin Heidegger, Nikolai Berdyaev, and others, freedom of choice leads people into perdition. Fyodor Dostoevsky expressed this paradox with the full force of his lively, poetic genius in his parable of the Grand Inquisitor in his novel The Brothers Karamazov of 1818. Uh, Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor depicts the dilemma of human beings who are paralyzed by the existential tension arising from the tragic and almost comic situation of the human being who on the one hand is created by God for freedom but on the other hand is too feeble and weak and too afraid to embrace the risk, responsibility and vulnerability that freedom brings. And I think one of the tasks of theology in post-Christendom will be to restate the wildness, the danger, uh, the, uh, the freedom and the ineffability of God. I remember when I was uh, working on my doctorate in Dublin, I heard um, a talk by an Irish theologian, and uh, it was John O'Donoghue, I heard him a, a couple of years later at Greenbelt, and uh, one of his constant themes was that uh, theology today needs to make God dangerous again. Uh, so we're not talking about making theology great again, uh, but we can at least make it, uh, uh, make it dangerous again. Uh, so public theologians uh, need to rediscover uh, that the real Jesus whom we encountered in the Gospels is not a safe domesticated deity. He's not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild of children's nursery rhymes. He's a spirit-empowered, divine human being who expresses the wildness, the danger, and the absolute freedom of God. So this is the first part of our triad, freedom, and I think as Baptists uh, we should be concerned uh, about the issue of freedom. But of course we should be concerned about the issue of compassion, which forms the second part of the triad. And uh, it's like we always say to our students at Spurgeon's College, don't we, Seidel, that um, theology, whatever else it may or may not be, Theology most fundamentally is loving God. And uh, one way of thinking about theology is to envision it in terms of a phenomenology of compassion. Now phenomenology refers to a scientific or philosophical method that examines the way that experiences reveal themselves to human consciousness, which then gives shape and form uh, to that consciousness. And in this way, we can define a theologian as someone who is learning to interpret and assimilate her experience from the perspective of compassion. And compassion from this perspective is not merely one Christian virtue among others. Compassion refers to a way of being in the world. Compassion is a pre-critical orientation that structures our whole experience of the world. And the trouble again is, is that uh, like freedom, compassion is difficult, it's hard work. And uh, one of the most obvious conclusions to draw from the life of Jesus 
as described in the Gospels, is that a life of compassion requires vulnerability. It requires discipleship and suffering. And interpreting theology in terms of a phenomenology of compassion reminds us that love, or more specifically agape, self-sacrificing love, is the ultimate revelation of God. And we see this in the Incarnation. In the Incarnation and in the Crucifixion, that God himself participates in self-limitation or even in the, in, in, the crucif- in the case of the crucifixion, he participates in the existential hell of human suffering in a mind-blowing, logic-defying demonstration of his solidarity with humanity in pain. And for the crime of loving people, the Son of God is betrayed, he's whipped, he's spat upon, he's abused, he's mocked, Uh, He's tortured, he's humiliated, and he's eventually uh, made to suffer an obscene and excruciating death on a cross. I would argue that a vision of public theology that is rooted in compassion is imperative for today's world. We're living in a society, I've described this trend at at length in my book, Uh, we're living in a society that is suffering from what, uh, what I've called a crisis of compassion. And the politics of austerity, uh, the promotion of wealth accumulation at the expense of uh, the poor in society, the rise of xenophobic uh, populist politicians on the left and the right, these are just some of the surface manifestations of a much deeper spiritual malaise, uh, what Martin Luther King Jr. might have described as a metaphysical disease at the heart of contemporary society. Uh, The German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer notably claimed that in situations of injustice, compassion is obliged to express itself, not sentimentally or romantically, compassion is obliged to express itself in protest and nonviolent forms of resistance, including civil disobedience. And a public theology that is rooted in a vision of compassion can raise its prophetic voice against social trends that are not consistent with the values of the kingdom of God. And here we get to the the, the key uh, thesis of my book, which is all about trying to re-envision Christianity, because I think that the world uh, still awaits the emergence of Christianity, not as a religion of private salvation, but as a gospel movement of universal, creative, life-giving, life-enhancing, life-affirming compassion. And my hope for a theology of the future uh, is that um, it can help to envision Christianity precisely in these terms and that Baptist theologians in particular uh, can be at the forefront of this. So I'm coming to the the final part um, or or the last uh, element of the triad which is the theology of creativity. And I would argue that theology uh, is a passionate pursuit of the truth that engages the intellect in tandem with the imagination. And so theology needs to provide a hospitable environment for poets and mystics as well as for scholars and systematic thinkers. Uh, Theology in common with human beings themselves aspires to transcendence and eternity. And as such, theology cannot be confined to the sphere of observable phenomena and empirical facts. Reality, in other words, 
Uh, reality is not exhausted by data and information derived from the five human senses. Truth is not to be confused with factuality. Uh, there's more to truth than space the space-time world of observable phenomena that present themselves to the human mind as facts. And truth encompasses myths and symbols and imagination as well as facts, logic, and reason. So taking creativity as its point of departure, theology posits that a human being is not simply a rational animal motivated by elemental instincts, but a human being is also a spiritual and a visionary being who inhabits a world of metaphor and symbol which express his or her yearning for transcendence. This is a point that has been made eloquently by the likes of Paul Ricoeur and Jürgen Moltmann, among others. So public theologians in a post-Christian world should therefore recognize that the study of human nature must go beyond existing empirical facts and take seriously the role of dreams and visions and imagination as constitutive elements of the human condition. And taking theology, sorry, taking creativity as its point of departure, theology can recognize the importance of narrative, of story to a proper understanding of the scriptures and the character of God to whom the Bible testifies authoritatively. So for example, the stories or the parables that Jesus told testify to the immense plenitude of the divine imagination. Jesus did not present his disciples with a list of propositional statements about the character of God. He didn't come with an announcement that God was omnipotent or homoousius or um, uh, omniscient or inerrant uh, or impassable or immutable. He didn't use these words. Instead, he told creative stories that illustrated the spiritual reality and the truth of the kingdom of God. And I'd like to suggest that non-propositional presentations of the gospel are going to become more and more uh, relevant uh, as society transitions further into post-Christendom. And the post-modern condition has lost confidence in the explanatory power of propositional language to represent reality. Postmodernity is characterized by a rediscovery of the power of narrative, of myth and parable to convey truth and express reality. And the postmodern shift has generated a new interest in narrative which discloses a depth of meaning which propositional statements are unable to elucidate. So finally, I'd like to just make a very brief case for uh, public theology, the continuing relevance of public theology uh, in a post-Christian world. So within post-Christendom, public theology must be able to express itself uh, in public in non-violent and non-dogmatic forms. Public theology should find new and creative ways of conveying the gospel of life and hope into a culture of despair and death. Now the notion of public theology 
is based on the fundamental conviction that there is no sphere of human activity that is beyond the reach of the kingdom of God. The transforming power of the gospel penetrates the whole world with its redeeming light. And theologically speaking, we can say that for the Holy Spirit, there's no such thing as a no-go area. We're just as likely to encounter God on the street, or in the park, or in a hospital ward, or in an orphanage, or in a care home, as we are to meet God in a church. God is living and active in the world for which he cares and provides. So therefore, public theology in post-Christendom should have a Christocentric rather than an ecclesiocentric impulse. And theologians should be concerned not with the survival of the church, but with the welfare of the city and ultimately with the salvation of the world. We should, as theologians, we should be more interested in what God is doing in the world than with what Christians are doing in churches. Thank you for your attention. Yes, thank you. And uh, it's a great question because it shows, um, uh, it's, it's an encouragement actually because it, it shows that you've been listening to what I'm trying to say, which is about trying to, to, to have a more Christocentric understanding of the activity of God in the world beyond the missional and uh, evangelistic activities of the church. Um, I would say um, that it's important to understand the ways in which uh, God is active um, in the world, beyond, uh, beyond church activities. And uh, this means that we need to be uh, aware of the ways in which God is, um, is speaking to the church. We usually, from the Christendom perspective, we, we understand our mission in terms of um, the church trying to give a steer to uh, society or to teach society, but we also need to listen and to be attentive uh, to the movement of the Holy Spirit in the world, perhaps even, uh, and I've suggested this tentatively in my book, uh, perhaps even recognizing that uh, the postmodern condition or the spirit of postmodernity uh, we can view uh, as um, a movement of the Holy Spirit in the world today uh, because it's deconstructing some of the... Um, uh, the anti-Christian narratives of secularism and, uh, and, and humanism. So I think we need to listen and be attentive uh, to, uh, to, to prophetic voices that are being uh, raised outside of church context so that we can not imitate uh, but respond uh, appropriately and, and critically to some of these movements in the world. So 
absolutely we need to take uh, a Christocentric approach and this means uh, listening and being attentive uh, to the movement of God in the world. Thank you Joshua, really stimulating and fascinating. Um, I was left with all sorts of um, thoughts about that. Um, I think I'm left with the thought that as a theologian, probably properly, you are seeking to subvert things and most of all you seem to be seeking to subvert what we know as church. Uh, you speak about freedom of God, which we, I think we would all accept, but what is the extent of that freedom from our perspective? We like to have statements of faith, so we know what we believe. We like to have propositional statements about who God is and who we are, and yet um, you're against, you've proposed, uh, you know, there's not be propositional, and why that? kind of take on board what you're saying, there's another, another level of which, you know, you're subverting the church as we know it, I think, in what you're saying, to such a degree, what then becomes of the gathered community church? I mean, that's a bit of a waffly kind of question, but mm -hmm. I'm left with all sorts of questions around that. Yeah, no, thanks, Ed. It's a fair question. Um, I don't think the aim and intention is quite as iconoclastic um, as, uh, as might be implied. Um, I'm not just thinking about uh, your question, but, but you've quite rightly inferred that from, from the way that I've presented the case today. And I realized that I could have made a more nuanced case, and hopefully I have done in the, in the actual book. Um, I think that with the presentation, just trying to set out some of the, uh, the contours of the basic um, argument. But in the book, I've expanded on uh, the notion of uh, church, that there does need to be some sort of ecclesial uh, minimum, um, that there is still a place for the gathered church, and that's part of our uh, conviction, our biblical conviction as, uh, as, as Baptists. And uh, I've also um, uh, noted that um, I, I, I'm quite actively involved in, in, in ministry in eastern Ukraine, for example. I'm going to Ukraine next week, and I, I've, I've observed the difference that local churches can make, and I, I'm absolutely convinced that if it were not for the local churches on the ground, that, that we'd have absolute anarchy and chaos. The whole society would break down. So I'm not trying to, um, to be subvertive to the extent of saying that we need to do away with church, uh, but I do think we need to re-envision Church. church needs to find uh, radically new expressions um, in order to be relevant and uh, credible and compelling to the contemporary age, but also to be true to its biblical roots. I mean, you say that we need to have, um, we like to have propositions and, and statements. We like to know where we stand. Uh, propositions and creeds didn't come into existence uh, until the Christendom era, uh, where the, before that things were much more loosely defined and, and Christianity was understood in more in terms of a movement rather than as a, an, a religion or, or, or an imperial religion. So this is the, the heart of the book, the heart of the intention of the book is not to be subvertive or to be anti-church. Uh, the heart of the book is trying to re-envision uh, the meaning of Christianity in the contemporary world away from the notion of religion, as, uh, of Christianity as a religion of private salvation towards a movement, a gospel movement of universal compassion that finds expression in, in various different ways, including 
in the gathered community. So there is still a, a role for that. Thank you for um, such a, an intriguing talk. Um, I'm really compelled by the, the public element of what you're saying. And if this isn't too stupid a question, um, can you give us a few examples of how you're um, working to make the ideas in your book, which you've mentioned, published by an academic publisher, um, how you're trying to get those ideas more into the public sphere, what that actually practically looks like for you as a theologian? Yeah, thank you. It's not uh, not a stupid question at all. It's a very relevant and practical question that I'm trying to um, uh, to ask myself, um, so that this doesn't just get lost in abstraction. So that it does actually find some concrete expression. Um, there are ways of uh, socialising these ideas, introducing them uh, more generally. Um, so, I, I, as I said, I'm going to uh, to Ukraine uh, next week. I've been um, uh, involved in various uh, public consultations involving the Ukrainian Ministry of um, uh, Education, trying to, to introduce some of these new ideas about theology into uh, that post-Soviet context. Uh, and, and, and the book actually was just published in, in Ukrainian uh, oops, uh, two, two days ago. Um, so um, I, I think I'm finding uh, more of a receptive audience in, uh, in, in that Eastern European uh, context than over here, but I suppose it's, it, it's early days. Um, I, I think in my role as tutor of Spurgeon's College as well, I think that I can introduce students who are going out to, to, to become leaders of local churches, um, and, and the ideas have a kind of trickle-down um, effect in that way. Um, I haven't understood my task in terms of providing a kind of prescriptive recipe about how you do this. It's, it's, it's intentionally uh, visionary and aspirational. And um, the, the aim is to uh, inspire the imagination of readers so that they can apply some of the ideas and principles in creative ways uh, in their own context. But um, let's, let's continue the, the discussion because perhaps you have some, some ideas that you can share about how to, uh, to make this relevant and to make this concrete in real situations. I'd be interested to hear from you. So thanks for your question.